You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Hi, and welcome to The Compass, the podcast documenting the struggles of life as an artist. I'm Leah Walsh. I have a mini episode for you today. I haven't done one of these in a while because I was trying to get the 100th episode out before the holidays. But we recently got to see an early screening of Spielberg's The Post with Meryl Streep and Tom Hanks. And it's about journalists from The Washington Post and The New York Times who published the Pentagon Papers regarding the involvement of the United States government uh, with the Vietnam War and their cover-up of what was actually going on there. And it centers around Merrill's character, Kay Graham, who ended up being the first female newspaper publisher. Anyway, there was a talkback after the film with a bunch of the actors and the casting director, Ellen Lewis. And they had asked us to put our phones away during the film, of course, but they said you could take them out during the talkback. And so people were taking pictures, they were filming... And I decided on a whim to turn on my voice recorder just to see, um, you know, if it was a short and sweet talk back or if it really got into the deeper issues of the film, which I had really enjoyed. And they really did. Uh, so if you are interested, please take a listen. This, um, this movie is about a, a lot of important concepts about the First Amendment and um, the kind of lying to the press that's happening now. My friend Matthew Lopez, who is a playwright, wrote about this on Facebook when he saw the film recently. He said, Steven Spielberg's new film, The Post, is as essential as American movie making gets. And not just because it features career high performances by Meryl Streep and Tom Hanks, starring in a movie together for the first time. Aside from being grand, old fashioned entertainment, it is a robust and thoughtful defense of the First Amendment. And a reminder that the press serves those who are governed and not those who govern. Catch it when it comes out at Christmas and bring your family. We find ourselves once again with our freedoms imperiled by an autocrat in the White House. It's good to be reminded of how Americans reacted the last time that happened. And I couldn't agree with his words more. So I hope you enjoy this this little recording and you get a chance to see the movie when it comes out. Another thing that they talk about that's really interesting is that Spielberg decided to make the movie in a very compressed amount of time. They started filming in May of 2017, and the movie is coming out now. And he really wanted to make it happen to come out before 45's first year in office was over. Anyway, I hope everyone has a good week. I hope you can get a little bit of sunlight somewhere. And I'll talk to you soon. say that but now that 60% of the people graduating from law school are women and medical school has parity there was nothing then there were very few women at the top of any industry and she was delivered to that position by virtue of you know her pro and her father owned it owned the Washington Post and when it came time to hand it down to someone he gave it to her husband who was a brilliant man, but, and she didn't feel bad about that as portrayed in the film. She thought that's the way it should be, and that's the way women thought. They thought men should run things, and that's the way it should be. And she, so her insecurity was built into uh, the way she came into the post uh, as a mature woman who had never run anything except her family. 
And she came to this moment, in this historical moment, where she had to make a gigantically complicated decision, a business decision, aided by her great advisors, and, and um, a decision about what's right to do in the world. And she had uh, great advice on that. But it still all came down to her. And I think that's something conscience is is uh, where this meets our moment, you know, whether we stand up and do the right thing. And Tom playing Ben Bradley. Um, there is there a question here? <laughs> Pause. Do I get some license for a dramatic pause? Actually, formulating the question in my mind. That's what it's like to act with him. Jumping into your pause. You know, I've read, and I've read a lot of, uh, uh, and I'm a political reporter by trade, and I guess I didn't have a good sense, too, of their relationship until watching this movie, of Ben Bradley and Kay's relationship. It was a true partnership. It was, uh, and it was based on an ocean of respect and I think empathy. Uh, and I think when you combine that, that's a version of love that was undeniable between the two of them. He knew what his responsibility was, and his was to drive towards uh, nailing down the truth in, uh, despite an awful lot of cynicism, uh, in both in politics and, and in media. But he, he always, he, he knew what was at stake for this, um, anxiety-filled human being that had always just been either the daughter or the wife of the real forces behind the paper. And when she became the force behind the paper, and what's extraordinary about uh, when we read the script for the first time in February, um, and then before we started making it in May, um, was was what is, at, what, what is was at stake. This is the story, really, of the week that Catherine Graham became Catherine Graham. Uh, and under circumstances where she truly could have made a decision that threw her in jail, cost her the, 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 the licenses for her television stations, and could have absolutely ruined her uh, uh, in the face of this almost incomprehensible assault on the, on the First Amendment by the President of the United States. Um, and he, he, funny, 1971-2017, it's like you just take the integers and invert them. I just, Don't you love that William Rehnquist made that phone call from William Rehnquist? Yeah. 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 All those people. So, so the, 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 the great emotional structure of, of the movie is, is this, um, that for, for, for Ben Bradley, he knows that only one person can make this decision. And if it's the wrong decision, they're not true custodians of the fourth estate. And if she makes the right decision, they could all go to jail. Well, what, what, a, what a fulcrum of destiny that was for Catherine Grant. Let's do it. Let's do it. <laughs> that scene, right, where she gets so dramatic. Um, Sarah, I, I know Sally Quinn very, very well. And I did not know Tony Bradley, Ben Bradley's uh, first wife. So it really was an introduction. To second her. wife. Yes, Are thank you. you Tony, right. what's his Sorry, thank you. Thank you, Tom. Um, Thanks, Tom. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for that. Second better wife. Thank you. <laughs> There's that great scene 
where you're wrapping up and covering up her sculptures and paintings. And I feel like the line you deliver is like the centerpiece of this film about Kay's courage. Um, I, I think it was an opportunity for her to remind him of, of uh, the luxury of his particular vantage point being a man and, and as much respect and an admiration um, and equality as he felt with her and, and for her, it, he did need a little gentle reminder that so much was on the line for her. And, and I, I, did, I did love that moment in the script and I was glad that I got to be part of it and to look in this mug while I was doing it was also an, an extra benefit. Yeah, really good. <laughs> better and better. Um, Bob. Um, Hi. <laughs> Sorry, I'm I should say, nobody's work. mentioned it yet. How great was Nixon in this movie? <laughs> I mean, he fucking pulled it off. And he didn't arc much, but he made a whole three dimensional asshole. But because I didn't realize this till reading afterwards that, that Steven Spielberg used the tapes for his voice That's in that scene. Yeah, That's really great. Mm -hmm. Magoo, yeah. as they say about Nixon. That's what was so cool about it. The real Magoo. Yeah. Please call him that. Bob playing Ben, right? Yeah. Um, remind everybody about Ben's relationship with Daniel Ellsberg, how they first Oh, yeah, they'd worked together partners. at Rand years before. And uh, so when all this went down, Bagdikian, real guy, you can see him on YouTube. He loved journalism. And, that was his whole life, and he wrote a great autobiography as well, as well as a few other books about journalism. And uh, he just kind of did the math in his head of people involved with um, the Rand, the work at Rand, and he kind of knew that uh, Ellsberg was a, a hot potato. He was a guy who uh, was kind of an intense personality who might actually uh, have the stones to do this, uh, to get these papers out. So he hunted it down. But it was Ben's line, it was Ben's actual line, right? The only way to assert the right to publish is It was, they it was stole it from line. me, and yeah. they gave it to this, this guy, Tom Hanks. I don't know why you would do that. There was nothing contractual involved in my getting that. But it's at the core of, uh, the, of that question of what they're trying to do here is, uh, they all sort of agree that the paper has the right to publish. So the reason you can't um, hold off just for out of you know whatever because you're asked to uh, with uh, no lives in the balance uh, that can be pointed to is because if you do that, then you are not acting on that right, and by not acting on it, you're losing it. You're, it's such a it's kind of a catch twenty two almost for the paper. You have to publish it if you know it um, to uh, to kind of live by to live the Constitution and that right. Mm -hmm. Anyway, and Matthew playing Daniel Ellsberg, did, did you did you feel a certain um, a certain responsibility in playing that character given his role in history? Yes, enormously so, and. Um, Forgive my ignorance as an immigrant among you all. Uh, having read the first paragraph about Daniel Ellsberg, I, I sort of took an intake of breath when I realized wh whose shoes I was attempting to, to fill, um, and not just to play him like a hot potato.
pizza. Um, but but he he was he was a he was a true pioneer of of what he did and and the amount of bravery that took. Uh, I still can't quite fathom having a, a real privilege of sitting with him for a whole day. It's it still doesn't quite when he the circ he went through all the circumstances and, and it still didn't it still doesn't quite sink in as to, as to the steps he took in order to put this in motion. So, um, yeah. How did you find him in person? Still enormously um, passionate and still enormously patriotic. And, 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 that's, and that was the more moving thing is, he was, so, he was called so often unpatriotic. And he did have a true love of country. Tracy, I think about Fritz and watching, I thought he was such a good advisor to Kay Graham. He didn't, he didn't tell her what to do, he helped her discover what she really wanted to do. Does that make sense the way I'm saying that? I think. Yeah, it makes sense. I, I didn't know anything about Fritz Beebe before doing this. I still don't really know anything about him. Uh, I'm, I'm really only here because Craig T. Nelson wanted too much money. <laughs> that is awesome. Uh, you know, they send you a lot of research material uh, before you do a job like this, but we, I, a guy like me, I get hired right before we start. And so I, and I'm a very slow reader. And so I thought, well, I'll read this book called The Washington Post, since that's the guy I am. And I got up to Teddy Roosevelt, and then I had to go to work the next day with Meryl. It's like, I only read up to Roosevelt. I still don't really know anything about Fritz B. Uh, but, but the job seemed to me, uh, the dramaturgy is on the page, and the job seemed to me to be about a guy who loves this woman and is going to help her uh, make a decision. It seemed to me at its core this was a movie about uh, a woman who has to make a political decision and uses principles to guide her. And uh, she consults with the, the, the good authorities she has in her life, but ultimately it's her decision. And so that part of it was easy to play. That was all apparent on the page. Carrie Meg Greenfield, you know, as a political journalist, I admired her so much. I actually lived on Cambridge Place with her. You know, she lived on the block near Kay Graham's house, and she was such a role model. Um, and then to see her breed the decision by um, Justice Black and those lines, it's so powerful as a journalist. So powerful. As an actor, it's powerful, too, because one of the things on your bucket list, inevitably, is your Spielbergian underscored moment in your career, which I have now had. Um, I hope to have another one, but you know, it's, it's uh, checked off that box, which is thrilling. I would have loved to have known her. I didn't really know much about Meg Greenfield when I got this part, but I really enjoyed reading about her. And one of the things that was said about her is that she had a very clear, strong sense of right and wrong. And that was something people said about her often. She was sort of unimpeachably had made always made that distinction, which makes her a great editorial editor, right? But she also had a great sense of humor, and she seemed like a really extraordinary person. And I'm just looking forward to the day that somebody makes a biopic about her, because she's here, a very here. small part of this movie. I mean, she was just finding her way into the newspaper at that time. She was the assistant editor, and I think she's extraordinary. And her, if you if you don't know anything about her, go home and look her up. She's really interesting, and uh, she was really important to. She was a great herself. friend. Of yes, they became very good friends. They became very good friends. And in, in uh, Catherine Graham's 
fantastic autobiography. If you haven't read it, it's called Personal History. It won the Pulitzer. It's like 700 some pages. <laughs> Beautiful. Our friend Nora uh, wrote a review of it and said, halfway through she was describing the book and she just broke into it and said, how can I, how can I convey how great this book is? Because it really is. It's so um, beautifully imagined, beautifully written. And you realize just the greatness of these women, their potential, what they, you know, what so many women who were excluded from the rooms could have been and done. And one really revealing thing, uh, you made me think of it, was that she and Meg Greenfield would speak about how they kind of liked not having any other women around. <laughs> Being the only women in the room. Yeah, and, and the, there was a little gloating Absolutely. Yeah. yeah, they were dominant in that. Yeah, and that was kind of shitty, so she wasn't perfect. No, she wasn't perfect at all. And she also spoke, and Meg wrote a very slim biography before her death that she never finished. And unfortunately, she didn't finish it before she got to her personal life. But she talked about men always presuming that she was an idiot, and so they would just tell her everything. And they would explain things and over-explain things, and she always got the scoop, because she was like, well, tell me more, you know, and they would just spill it. So she was not, she was very aware of her own power in those rooms. And little did they know that Meg was summa cum laude from Smith, and she was a Fulbright scholar. Yeah, she was extraordinary. Yeah, yeah I actually, and because of this role, I went back and, and read, her, it was actually the obit in the New York Times, and. I just want to read this because she is so terrific. I'm with you on the movie. Um, she wrote this scathing profile of Nixon in 1960 in which she wrote, and I just want to read it because I just think it's timely. So, uh, and this is of Nixon. Refusal to answer a question by setting up a straw man to attack instead is not an uncommon device of debating. But in Nixon's prose, the straw man emerges as more than a debating device. It is an innate feature of his thinking. Nixon apparently finds it almost impossible to make a statement that is not, in some manner, an argument. Ideas never quite exist for him until they have been pitted against something else, an extreme danger, a radically different point of view, or a potential attack from some sinister quarter. And yet he looks great. <laughs> we'll take him. He looks level-headed. So, Even-tempered and level-headed. So Ellen, forgive me, I was working my way down the list, but Ellen, you've long collaborated with Steven Spielberg. How did you bring this terrific cast together? Well, I haven't long collaborated with Steven, but I've been working with him on the last three pictures that he's done, and it's been fantastic. And as they've spoken about, we were doing another film called The Kidnapping of Edgardo Mortero on Monday. And on Friday at 10.30, I got a call from his producer, Christy McCosco-Krieger, saying, we're doing this movie, and you have to do it. And it was truly like, I thought she was calling to say, we're going with one of the kids, you're leaving for Italy tomorrow. You know, instead it was like, no, we're, we're doing this totally other film that we need to jump into immediately uh, and get going. And that's what we did. And didn't have a lot of time, but I'm just everybody watching everybody here on stage. I mean, it just all gels. It's so thank you. Casting is so intuitive, and you know, and working with Stephen, you work with the director. That's what our job is: is trying to feel 
who are these people and who will embody this and who will work with <coughs> Marilyn Tom, who of course were here already and as I've said, everybody wanted, you know, actors were lining up, but it's always tricky and it's very delicate casting. So I'm so very proud. <laughs> casting directors launched careers. She launched this one. Was this the first time um, Tom, you and Meryl had worked with Steven Spielberg together, three of you? Yeah, yeah. yeah I, uh, I was never, I never had a movie that had a Meryl Street position in it, and when she had one that uh, I could have been in Mamma Mia if only I could sing decently. <laughs> <laughs> it's as close as I could get it. No, I mean, we knew each other, kind of like from that kind of like famous people's club. Hey, Meryl. Hey. <laughs> Let's pretend we know each other. I'm nuts about you. I think yeah, you Yeah, no, I didn't, yeah. we didn't really know. But we, we, we had Nora. Mike and Nora. Nora. And Mike. Yes, yeah, I heard Mike stories about it. So I knew this a lot about Mike Nichols and Nora But I, I knew how Stephen worked, so I kept that in my in my pocket. Yeah. So I never, I, uh, we, we got together, at all, everybody who was a writer, everybody who, on the staff of the Post, we went over some things, because I knew that Stephen does not rehearse, and Stephen has this great affinity for anything that actors bring to the, bring to the mix, but uh, uh, I'm, I'm familiar with the guy, so uh, I, I, I didn't have nearly, I think, the anxiety that a lot of other people did, including... Yeah, he didn't tell me that Spielberg doesn't rehearse. He told all of you. He didn't tell, no, he didn't tell me. He didn't tell you? No, he didn't. That was a shock. Yeah, it was. Right? Yeah. Right? Yeah, it's a fight. How many takes So many lines. You? There's some days, as I said to the guys, there's some days where he was like, I, 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 I'm not sure how we're going to shoot this scene. I'm not sure how we're going to do it. What, what do we start? What do we start? Okay, what do we start? Uh, Janusz, Janusz. I got a bus. I got a bus. We're going to come down there. We're going to have a, we're gonna have a 75. We're going to see a Bring it up to the ceiling. We're going to see something in the ceiling. Right. That's okay. We're going to bring a two camera right next to you. know you're shooting the scene. Uh, and But there's other days where you just come in and it's set. And there it is. The shot is what it is, and what you have to do is behave realistically in that shot. But an awful lot of the work is is done for you, and that's that's just the man who thinks. Yeah, but the, it was terms. the real shock was how improvisatory it was, and how much freedom and collaborative freedom every actor had to bring. Didn't you? I was just so that? nervous. I didn't. Any instinct I had was just buried so deep. <laughs> I didn't know what to do. You know, I was Why nervous. Were you nervous. I was, Why? I think you know one of the funny things was every time I went into the makeup trailer and there was a new person there, we all sort of leaned to each other like, have you been sleeping? Are you, do you uh, yeah, no, I haven't slept. I, I'm wearing a diaper. It's like, a, it's like, <laughs> like everybody had that, like what Carrie was saying of, of realizing we were all having this sort of bucket list fantasy be realized, uh, working with all of these people. You know, it just, it was extraordinary. So any instinct I had, it was, you know, what's that great line from Waiting for Guffman? I, I, you know, didn't pay attention to it or ignored it or something. Yeah. <laughs> is there something, since everybody here just saw the film, is there something that, that didn't make the film that ended up on the cutting room floor? Oh, God, <laughs> a lot. That, yeah, I know, that, that might inform our historical perspective of it. No. No, no, <laughs> just, just a good idea. <laughs> <laughs> I thought that, that 
change in yeah, the, the opening was a, a big bug. deal. Yeah. And, and, uh, yeah. Black and we had Truman Capote's Black and White. And ball. Jefferson Mays was fantastic. Yes, in that Capote. Oh. We, we shot it in the room at the at the plaza where it took place. Gloria Steinem came in. Yeah. She was at the party. Yeah. She was describing what it was like. And we were in there for a couple of days. And everybody, you know, it's like everybody's in tuxedos and stuff like that. Um, it was an attempt, I think, uh, to establish the newness of Catherine Graham, because that party was thrown by Truman Capote, sort of as his introduction of her to the Graham Glitterati intelligentsia. But it occurred in like 1965, 66, it was years before, and uh, they just went, took one look at the dreamboat who was playing Daniel Ellsberg, and we said, we'll start the movie with him. <laughs> and that was that. Get that out of the way. <laughs> <laughs> It is the only scene, you know, of Vietnam and fighting in Vietnam, which is ultimately about, you know, 60,000 men who didn't come back. Yeah, I think it was the, the black and white ball. The idea was to contrast the world of the glitterati New York and then the grit of, and the, but that was so, it set up a contrast that was not valuable, I think. You thought of Catherine Graham as this party queen when she really was not that. You, there was a lot to work back from. And also, the Vietnam stuff, the cost of the war. I don't know if anybody else w was when you were, we were doing this. It was just the same time Ken Burns had released his seven-part series, eight-part series. And I was looking at that at the same time. It's just you, just the weight of it and the cost of it, and remembering kids from my high school who just—I mean, it all came back. And and um, that's what the movie. That was the stakes of of what they were doing was to reveal that that line from that I keep coming back to um, that Meg read. You know, from from Justice Hugo Black, the press was to serve the governed, not the governors. Yeah that four decades of presidents had essentially said this is a war engagement that's not winnable. That was the Pentagon Papers. And to McNamara's credit, who, who was duplicitous in many ways, to his credit, he commissioned them. Warts and all. He Warts and to, all. He wanted to learn. Mm -hmm. Yeah. We actually, we actually had the papers there in those scenes where we were working, you know, sorting things out. We were actually, we're all, we read a lot. Most of us, well, I don't know, can you? Anyway, uh, and we, uh, we were actually reading the papers, and they're pretty one-sided. It's amazing. Like, there isn't a page you pick up that is like, Vietnam's going great. There isn't a single thing that you read that says it's going in our favor or looks good or possibility it's all negative it's amazing um <clears throat> Meryl, talk about too you know you said you know younger younger women don't remember but those scenes in the boardroom the scenes with the investors and i kept waiting for her to speak hmm. i kept waiting <sighs> yeah i mean i i i been in meetings sort of like that. I've had a great idea in a meeting, and it wasn't heard. Anybody, a female else done this? And then somebody else uh, 
here's it sort of here's the thing maybe he heard it in his head hmm. and then he repeats it and if there's a commercial about it I mean it's, uh, this actually happens all the time it will strike a heavy gong with a lot of women <laughs> and not just in the olden days um, yeah it's it's that thing women in leadership we're just not completely there comfortable with it um, and so this was the moment where a lot of things were breaking loose in that in this area. I mean, I was just in Boston, like a couple of hours ago, with <laughs> Gloria Steinem, and we were talking to a group of eleven thousand women, and I'm completely exhausted. But she, she's what eighty-five. And she has been through the whole first wave feminism, seen the whole, the tide go out and everything get pulled away. And here it comes back again, banked and ready, ready to spill. And it's, it's very exciting. It's, this movie talks about that moment when women started to be people and admitted to the room where it happens. And we were kept out, we've been kept out for a long time. So that's going to change. Yeah. <laughs> I heard the other day that we're on the fifth wave of feminism. Did you know that? Yeah. That we're well, on the it's wave. just we're in an evolution. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Things were one way for 40,000 years. How can you expect it <laughs> yeah. to change? Um, Tom, I thought about the, um, not only going back through history and seeing this, but, but also a reminder, and, and this is self-interested as a journalist, but the role of the press is incredibly important. The role of the press in exposing, you know, and I thought about what's happened, you know, uh, in our business too, but the role of the press is ultimately about exposing abuse, and whether it's in the Catholic Church or in government, it tries to do that. Well, that uh, Constitution of the United yeah. States that promises a continued work towards a more perfect union, um, there's a reason the First Amendment is the First Amendment, you know. Those rich, male, white slaveholders who didn't want to pay much of taxes who wrote the Constitution, they actually put in something magnificent in there. And you could almost you could almost say the first the First Amendment's enough. If we guarantee a country where there is no nationally established religion, meaning you get to worship God any way you want to, you can there's a freedom of assembly, which means any kind you can gather with any like minded people that you want. You can say anything you want to outside of fire in a crowded theater where there is no fire, <clears throat> uh, that's an extraordinary, those are three extraordinary freedoms that humankind had never had guaranteed to them before. Then you throw in a freedom of the working press, meaning that <clears throat> you get to write and read anything you want to, and you get to divine whether or not it is the truth or whatever it speaks to you. That alone is probably the great pyramid, tip, the tip of the pyramid that is the United States of America, and I think Western free thought. And our movie, that is a period movie in 1971, there had been other assaults on the First Amendment before, I mean, the Alien and Sedition Acts and the, in the uh, John Adams administration, plenty of things like that. But there's always been a contentious press. There has always been a press that had an agenda, that they were fomented. <clears throat> but you you could not be an American and curtail the press's right to print. 
the thing that's that's happening now that is extraordinary is it's that was an overt assault on the First Amendment. I think now we're experiencing more of a guerrilla war on the First Amendment. Is that there is a continuous decrying against the Fourth Estate for purposefully not wanting to tell the truth, and that's not true. You can Daniel Moynihan, the great the great senator, said this great thing: "You are entitled to your own opinion, but you are not entitled to your own facts." Now we are we are we are witnessing, I think, the legitimization, along with the diluting of the true essence of the Fourth Estate is being met with a legitimizing of literally a false narrative that is put out by people who know they are lying, who are promoting a very, very specific agenda, either into to topple the status quo or maintain their place in the status quo. And it is the same, uh, it is the same danger to our republic and to the Constitution, because it is purposely going after the creation of a less perfect union than the one our forefathers set down in the preamble of the Constitution. Thank you all for this wonderful film and for spending time with everybody here discussing it. Thank you and congratulations. listening to the Compass Podcast. If you find these conversations valuable to your life as an artist and would like to support the ongoing production of The Compass, please consider becoming a patron at patreon.com slash thecompasspodcast. Pledges start at as little as $1 a month. You'll get access to bonus content and anything you can give would be greatly appreciated. Also, if you have a moment, please rate or review in iTunes. Every little bit helps other listeners to find the podcast. I'd like to thank the following people for their generosity. The Compass cover art is by Kim Miller, music by Brendan Spieth, audio assistance from Nick Choksi, and a special thanks to Frankie J. Alvarez. See you next time. Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the RISE Theater Directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E dot org because only together we rise.